All right. Well, once again, good evening to you. And it is our unique and extraordinary privilege at this time to come together and spend time in God's Word. So let me pray, and then we will read a section of uh, Habakkuk and get started. Let me begin by prayer. Lord, uh, we call out to you this evening. We acknowledge there is none like you. We absolutely see and affirm our dependence upon you in all times and every day for all things. Lord, we know that you are the one who has created. You are the one who sustains. Lord, and you are the one that uh, uh, returns to the dust all things. And so we just pray that as we're here this evening, again, as we dig into Habakkuk and how it has such a, a powerful way, this portion of your word of revealing the natural inclinations of the hearts of men, the richness and power of our God. I pray that you would bless our consideration this evening. God, once again, that you would uh, challenge us through the things that we see in your word. Inform us, grow us, and change us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read for us together. I'm, uh, I'm going to take and read chapter 2 of Habakkuk. We'll actually begin reading in verse 2, and then we're going to consider to the end of the chapter. That's my hope. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits the appointed time, and it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake uh, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence uh, to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stones will cry out from the walls and the beams from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people label, labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness, and you have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourselves and show your uncircumcision. The Lord's 
the cup of the Lord is in the Lord's right hand, and it will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and will, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of men and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 18, what, does it, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. All right. So we take up now, and it's page seven of our notes as we're working our way through Habakkuk. And uh, we're, we're carrying on from the previous points. And as he's coming, in, and God is now uh, re responding to uh, the confusion of Habakkuk, we, we, we take it up on page seven. And in verse two, it simply says this, if I was to, and I, as I bring it into points, he says, we had seen last week, it's, it's uh, my word, my way, on my watch, my timing. As we move on further, we see the instructions, that's the content, but the instructions given to Habakkuk in terms of writing it down is to make it plain, make it permanent, make it practical, and mark it with patience. Because he says this, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, just as clear as you can. I mean, that ought to always be the goal of, of, of teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel, is to make it as plain as we can. It's not to make it as complex and as confusing a, a, as we can get to. Sometimes, dear sweet men, likely good-intentioned men, nonetheless get so captivated in the content of their study that on a given passage, they'll spend 90% uh, of their sermon saying, some believe this about this passage, and some believe this about this passage, and some believe this. And uh, not that it's wrong to do that, and you will hear me do that on occasion as well. But when a lot of the, some believe this, is nobody in that room, and possibly nobody in that county, maybe nobody in that state, it's probably not crucial to unload all of that stuff. And, and at the end of the day, isn't it better to make sure you've made plain what it does say? as opposed to just all of the myriad of things that it doesn't mean. You get what I'm saying, hopefully. Make it plain. Make it permanent. You're putting it on tablets, the more permanent form. I said make it practical. Remember, it says this. Uh, so he may run who reads it. Okay. No. Now, it's, it's, it's not that, that he's going to read while running. You know, so it's got to be written nice big letters and clear. No, but he runs it. He, he reads it and he may run. There is, a, there is a practical and a clear message for him to take with him as he goes, having read it. And then mark it with patience, because the judgment that is being declared here will come at God's appointed time. 
and not at the appointed time of men. And again, the appointed time for what's going on here, Israel had been sinful. Habakkuk was crying out to God, God, the wicked among Israel and Judah are oppressing the righteous. Do something. How long is this going to last? And then God tells him, ah, it's not going to last much longer. And when I tell you what I've planned, it's not anything that you want or expect. Because I'm going to take these people who are even more vile, even more violent, even more wicked, the Chaldeans, Babylonians, and I'm going to bring them against the people of Israel. Then Habakkuk goes into some degree of a frenzy and thinks, no, you, you can't do that. Which, really, we ought to be very cautious about saying that to God. Because he does not at any point seek or require our permission for anything. And indeed, if he says it, even if we can't wrap our minds around it, we trust him. We trust his word. Now, we're going to unpack a few things here that, that help to uh, hopefully make things clear to Habakkuk. As Habakkuk is disturbed that God is going to use the Chaldeans, this wicked people, to come and do this. I ask you for a moment. Is Habakkuk likely more aware of just how wicked the Chaldeans are? Does he know more than God does about how wicked and undeserving they are? No, God knows far more. And so if God has planned to use them, then we just keep understanding God's ways are not ours. But then sometimes we think if God is allowing something to happen, then if he only knew what I knew, then he would change his plan. Is that right? I'm afraid that some people pray like that. You know, let, let me inform you, oh God, about what is happening. And let me explain to you why it ought not be happening and why it's wrong. And then after I get everything squared away so that we're on the same page, now you can act according to what I think you ought to do. That is to absolutely turn things around. Always in our prayer, we yield to God's superior wisdom with regard, with, with regard to knowledge of individuals and circumstances, wisdom with regard to the way to go about dealing with it or meeting out His judgment, we always yield to God, right? And we may do it by saying, Lord, Lord, we commit these things to Your hands. And that's a phrase we use, and it's a good phrase. It's an acknowledgement that we rest on God to accomplish all His work. But I do remind us in the midst of that, even when we say, Lord, we commit this prayer matter into your hands, even if you don't say that in your prayer, the matter's already in his hands. And I must say, there's nothing you... I was killing a mosquito for... I mean, it probably looks strange, a clap out of nowhere. That's what I was doing. Uh, uh, no matter what you're thinking, no matter how you pray... Even if we don't commit it to his hands, can we take it out of his hands? Is there anything you or I or anyone else can do to take it out of his hands? Is there, would we want to? 
No, not when we understand who he is and that in all of his per, in all of what he has decreed all of what will ever happen he has purposed it and it is a, according to his eternal purposes which are first and foremost for his own glory and secondarily and significant to our hearts for the good of his people. And so we want that. But just so that Habakkuk doesn't get hopefully too distraught and confused, God explains to him that he knows very well who is this man and what's in his heart and why he's doing what he's doing. It says this in verse 4. And we see this, the devastating description and then God's unfolding decrees. First of all, we see God declares that he knows very well and clear the pride of the king of the Chaldeans. Now, at times, we may stand back and, th and even think to ourselves, well, God knows the pride of him God knows the pride of this coworker of mine. God knows the pride of this individual. And we've got a list of everybody who God knows the pride of. I want to be as gentle as I can here. But pride lodges in the heart of nearly every man. So God knows your pride. God knows my pride as well. So we take note of that. Now, in the mercies of God, we will, stand, we will stand not before God in the final day of judgment on the basis of our pride. We will stand not on the final day of judgment on the basis of our sin and our failings. We'll stand there, thankfully, not on the basis of our supposed good works and efforts. We will stand there accepted in the beloved, accepted in Christ Jesus. But it's, here's a strong warning, and he says this in Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. God does not need any man to explain. God shatters the mighty without investigation, the scriptures say. So the, the sense is this. When it comes to the final day of judgment, our witness is going to be called against the wicked. Will it be necessary? There will be no witnesses called against the wicked because their wickedness is absolutely known to God and he will judge them according to their deeds. There's also, you know, which may sound contrary to an American sense of justice, there is no defense attorney for the wicked. There is, there is no panel of his own peers with regard to passing judgment in a jury. God himself is the prosecutor. God himself is the one who passes the sentence. God himself is the one who carries out the sentence. I want to always, whenever we're studying the scriptures, our sense of the greatness and the being and person of God should continually be enlarged. It should reach the uttermost reaches of our mind's comprehension. 
And then when we see, when, because when we see God, just glimpses of his glory, his grandeur, his greatness, the scope of his being, and then we look at men. You might think to yourself, what does that fellow have to be prideful about? Because, I mean, what do we have? I mean, at times we might say that about someone else. What does this fellow have to be prideful about? He's so prideful about how he looks, but look at all these people better looking. He's prideful how smart he is. Look at all these people so much smarter. He's prideful. Whatever it is, usually we still say, you ain't the best. But listen, somewhere there is the smartest guy. Somewhere there is the most beautiful person alive today. It happens, but still, when you compare them to the beauty and the glory and the radiance and the power of God, is there a comparison? Pride should be absolutely squashed. It's, I think it's the same kind of thing that as we're told in Philippians, in, in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God in that passage where it says, be anxious for nothing. As you look to God, as, as you lay forth your supplications before Him, as you speak to Him with thanksgiving, what begins to happen? The anxiety falls away. Why? Because you know who you're speaking to. And, and your concerns and your issues, he has dealt with these things millions of time over human history. He has at times miraculously delivered from them. At times he's sustained us and strengthened within them. He's done it all. There's nothing new under the sun. What, things may happen that may be new in our lifetime or new to us. There's nothing new. And, and we get filled with pride. Listen to what Scripture says here in Proverbs 21, 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. I love what Spurgeon says here. He has this wonderful way of saying things at times. He says, is there a sin that is... Uh, is there a sin that is universal? It is this. Where is pride not to be found? Hunt among the highest and loftiest of the world. You shall find it there. Then go and search among the poorest and most miserable. You shall find it there. There may be as much pride inside a beggar's rags as in a prince's robe. And a harlot may be as proud as a model of chastity. Pride is a strange creature. It never objects to its logic. It will comfortably live in a palace. It will live equally in, at ease in a hovel. Is there any man in whose heart pride does not lurk? Now, are there not moments at which, you know, even in the smallest way, ego creeps up? How dare they treat me like that? How dare they say that to me? Has that ever happened to you? I know. 
Listen what it says in, in Mark. It lists those things that come out of the heart of men is what defiles him. And, and they come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. So before someone's actually murdered, it's come from within. Before they've committed adultery, it's come from within. All these sins come from within, and one that's lodged there among them is pride. We remember the words in 1 Peter 5, verse 5 through 7, um, says this uh, as you read through, um, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. I mean, that's a strong sentence. God opposes the proud. Now, I don't know what your thoughts immediately are, but if I'm going to be in opposition to someone, I don't want it to be God. I mean, it, it could be anybody else. You know, and with most other people that we might find ourselves in opposition to, we might think that there's a way to fool them, deceive them, defeat them, overcome them, something. But with God? No. Remember, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. There's no secrets from Him. We are, we are better at deceiving ourselves than we are at deceiving Him. I'm not that bad. I don't think I even sinned this week. Yeah, nice try. Uh, you may even somehow delude yourself to believe that one. But you're not fooling God. <laughs> Secondly, we see uh, God is well aware of the greed that, and, and the covetousness that drives this king. It says this. Now, I, I want you to note something here. In, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. And there's a couple things in there. Um, not, not just wine and the effects of wine. We could look at that. Um, but this is intended in this passage to carry a stronger sense. Now, the Masoretic text there says wealth. But the sense is this. And note this. When someone has taken much wine, we might say that they're not in in, in full control of their faculties, that there is an impairment, there is an influence. You're aware of that, right? If not by experience, at least by uh, uh, otherwise. And, and, and the fact is this, this man's pride and this greed are, are, are such that even the idea of wine will often have to do with a excess banqueting gluttony and it all begins to pile in for this man that he's never at rest his greed is as wide wide as sheol like death he never has enough he gathers for himself 
all, na all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So here this guy is just carrying on uh, uh, like sometimes they do then, uh, if they're overcome with wine, not considering what might be the ultimate consequences and outcome, not aware and, and not concerned with the practical impact of what he's doing in that moment. And he's running roughshod over people, destroying people. And what he doesn't understand is what we're going to see taken up right now. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, uh, we see the taunt song of woes and what's. It says, shall not all these take up their taunt? The New American Standard there says taunt song. You know, it, 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 you, the, the sense of it is all the nations are gathering together and saying, and, and that's the way in which they're delivering their taunt song so that this guy who's just so puffed up and so filled with himself is, is being, you know, mocked in, the, in that kind of taunt song way which people find pretty humiliating, right? Even now, you're a loser, you're a loser, can't... Well, I should. You know, we, we don't respond well to those kinds of things. Strangely, even as we mature in age, those things can still gnaw at us. And he, here it's going to come in a taunt song and it spreads it out even more. It says... Um, uh, and take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles. The um, New American Standard says with mockery and insinuations for him. So it's coming and he's going to have to answer for all that he's done. Psalm 31.23 says this. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts with pride. All right, it doesn't seem like it's happening. It seems like he's getting away with it. But he's not. God sees it. God sees every little word, every intention of the heart, and the man is going to answer for it. They take up the taunt song. And so let's, let's look at these four or five different woes. I think it's four different woes. The first one is the woe sort of a foolish gains. It says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors arise and awake those, uh, and those awake uh, who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. All right, so the taunt is coming in the form where it's treating this king who's taking all of these things for himself, it's treating him like a debtor. Like, you have just amassed for yourself all kinds of possessions, but you don't own them. You know, it, it, it would be like somebody somehow fooling the bank. Though they make $10,000 a year, they buy a $2 million house on payments, and they buy a $50,000 truck, and they buy their wife a Porsche, and they buy diamond rings, and all the, you know, they're filling up every credit card that exists. What is wrong with that person? Don't they realize 
that at some point, they've got to pay. And when they can't pay, what happens? They lose it all. Correct? Well, that's the picture that's being put to him. Because look, he's taken this nation. And he's taken that nation. Now, he was king of a particular nation. Now, he's taken another nation and another nation. Now, at God's permission, fulfilling God's purposes. But what he's not understanding all along is, at one point, he was king of a particular nation. But who's the king of kings? Yeah. And so, his nation... To some degree, in a temporal, limited, earthly sense, is under his dominion. But still, ultimately, remains under God's dominion. And every nation that he takes for himself, who owns all these nations? Who owns all these people? God. And so, here he's thinking that he can just keep taking, 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 and it's all going to be fine, and he doesn't realize what he's taking doesn't actually belong to him. And he's filling himself with this terrible sense of pride. Uh, I've described it in this way on page 8. He loads up, and then he loses. That's the, that's the first woe. He loads up and then he loses. Psalm 89, 11 tells us these simple words. Love it when the scriptures make it plain. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Anyone want to hazard a guess who this is talking to and about? God. So everything belongs to him. And this man thinks in his pride he's amassing it for himself and that he will get the glory and that he will stand in the pinnacle spot. Remember Nebuchadnezzar did that. Remember, he stood on top of his palace looking out at his kingdom and he began to get exceedingly full of himself. Look what my might and my wisdom and my glory has gotten for me. And while the words were still in his mouth, we've read that phrase before, right? What happened? The man who thought he was it, he was everything, realized actually, apart from God, he's nothing. I could go further. God removed from him all of his ordinary human faculties such that he became like a beast. Listen, that's a mercy because God could have withdrawn far more from Nebuchadnezzar. Could he not have? He could have withdrawn every bit of his life. He could have, again, we don't get the sense during his seven seasons as a beast that he was in constant excruciating agony or nonetheless doesn't seem to have been in utter mental torment because his mental faculties seem to have also kind of jettisoned but what what we get there is who's absolutely sovereign god and, and, and who owns absolutely everything? 
which is why the scriptures often remind us, so let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So if there's anything anybody sees that's good in you or praiseworthy in you, you know the ultimate source of it is not you or me. It's God. Because God is the one who gives all things. Again, Psalm 49 warns about those who load up. Those who, verse 6, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. What's the point in that? Because listen, there's something more important than this life and the things in your hands. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Because of the, because of the wickedness of man, is there any real atonement that man could provide for another man to satisfy God. The scriptures here are saying, no one's got that. No one can pay that. No one can ransom them out from under God's wrath. So what does it matter even if you were to accumulate the wealth of the whole world? You still don't have what matters most. I mean, you're still undone for eternity under the wrath of God. Because we know what? There was only one who could and did pay that ransom. And that's God himself by sending his own son. That the righteousness of God in him would be provided for those of us who are united to Christ by faith. Oh my. So we see that strong, the ransom for their life is costly and can never suffice. Men don't understand that, do they? We think so lightly of our sin. We don't, under, we don't grasp the gravity of it, uh, that he would, should never see the pit. And then it goes on uh, uh, expressing the warning down to verse 12 in, Fort Matthew, in Psalm 49. Man in his pomp will not remain He is like the beasts that perish. Just remember, in the end, every dog dies, every man dies. Stop overestimating yourself. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, and yet the people who come after them approve of their boasts. How do the people who come after them, in a sense, approve of their boasts? They do the same thing. They pursue the vain, same vain things. They pride themselves in the same vain things. And you think, will men never learn the lesson of their loss? And the answer is no. Apart from the grace of God showing them their wickedness and showing them the only ransom for their soul in the Son of God through the hearing of the gospel with faith, no one's going to get it apart from the grace of God at work. So he loads up and he loses. So, So the first part of the song is, you know, you load up but you lose kind of thing. I'm not going to keep doing that because I'm already tired of it, but you get it, right? You can do it at home with your kids. <laughs> Moving on to the second woe. 
The second woe is not only uh, 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 false riches or, or false gain, but the, the second one is false security. It says this, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, but a lot of times people gain for the sake of, they think, okay, if I go through a tough season now, if I miss a harvest now, if uh, my house burns down, gonna be okay. I got some money, I can rebuild it. Remember, they did not have insurance in those days in the ways that we do. Right? And so the people would, have, they would trust in their riches. I'm going to be okay. I've got enough stored away for a rainy day. Now, a lot of people we're finding out don't even seemingly, don't have the means or, or have not saved for a rainy day. And so this is a problem in our country right now, isn't it? A great difficulty. But our confidence can't even be in what we have because how long a famine might take place? How long an economic downturn might take place? We don't know. It's out of our hands. It's a, and so he goes on and says, he sets his nest high to be safe from the reach of harm. His whole design, he thinks he structured everything in his life so that I'm good. No harm can touch me. No matter what happens, I'm safe. Is he? Oh, it's a false security. It says in verse 11, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard that power belongs to God. Oh, if only, I mean, I feel like there, certain phrases would be exceedingly healthy for us to repeat on a daily basis. That's one of them. <laughs> Power belongs to God. When you're feeling down and, and you're feeling like the world's closing in, power belongs to God. When you're feeling up and like you've got it in your hands, power belongs to God. Whether, it's, whether, whether you're flat on your face and need a little lifting up with confidence in God, or whether you're a little too puffed up and need a little putting down by resting in God, whatever it is. The, the, but what this man needed to know is, if, if God pours out his wrath, he's not safe. And listen, if this man tries to pour out his wrath on others, but God protects them, they're safe. Because listen, or answer this trick question, who does power belong to? Okay, maybe not a trick question, but, uh, but I wonder what answers we'd get if we took a survey of a hundred people at a local store. First thing that comes to your mind, who does power belong to? I don't know. I, I would hope they'd all say God, but they might come up with some other crazy things. So this person, uh, I, you know, is, I say this, I've simplified it in this way. He fortifies and he forfeits. Because what happens? You devise shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very thing you've done to others, destroyed them for your advancement and protection, that's coming on you. You think you've fortified yourself, but you've forfeited your life. And the stones and woodwork will cry out against you. Put no trust, Psalm 62, in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. 
If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Oh, I already read this part. I was reading, I jumped down. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this power belongs to God. That, and that you, O oh Lord, to you belong steadfast love, for you will render to man according to his work. God has, as it says in Habakkuk 2 verse 10, you have devised your shame by cutting off peoples. You forfeited your life. The stones will cry out from the wall and the beams from the woodwork. There's no escape. The, the sense of this is, you think there's no witnesses left? You think there's nobody left to complain because you kind of squished all the complainers? You're still going to completely answer. There's no escape. Third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations wearying themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. And we'll see those verses later, but it's simply this. Look at this. Initially, he builds for himself. He builds. He burns. He thinks he's built for himself with brutality and injustice. And what ultimately is, is awaiting him? Nothing but fire. Page number nine. Woe number four. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order that you may gaze at their nakedness. You have their, your fill of, of, of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. A cup is often spoken of, and a cup with, mixed with wine is often spoken of symbolically in the Old Testament of, of wrath and anger being poured out. And so this guy has come, and in his wrath and anger, he's poured it out on other nations, and even to the degree that he's mistreated them, stripped them, humiliated them, he pleases himself as he brutalizes and shames others. But you know what? The same guy who pleases himself, he pleases, but he pays. It's coming back around to him. And I will say this. Here's a scary thought that, that ought not be missed. Uh, the cup that he's going to drink is what? The cup from the Lord's hand. Okay, so, so there's a temporary sense in which God may pour out his cup and allow men to pour out their cup in Temporal judgments and punishments and, and, and loss of wars and captivity. But when we, in the greatest sense of it, think of the Lord's cup, we're reminded, I hope, of the fact that Jesus says, look, I have a cup to drink of that you know not of. And is it the cup that he had to drink of was the cup of the wrath of God that would be poured out on him on the cross. Now, he could ask the disciples, 
do you think you can drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I have to be baptized with? And of course, they think, well, yeah. They can't. Now, they would face their own difficulties and they would face their own sufferings. That which was appointed for them would come upon them. But the cup that was given to the son to drink, the immensity of it is beyond what we can conceive. The full measure of all of the sins of all who will ever be forgiven. I can't measure that. But God can. Whereas each individual for eternity will bear their own measure of wrath. Christ bore the measure of a multitude of people that we might be saved in him. So, the last woe. There were five. Sorry, I think I said four. The, the last woe is also I characterize as the idiocy of of idolatry. I know that doesn't sound kind, but it's a real word with real meaning. And, and when you see, the scriptures will often say this uh, in different places. Look, I mean, you have this idol, but it has eyes, but does not see. It has ears, but do not hear. It has a mouth, but does not speak. It has, uh, speak. It has feet, but does not walk. I mean, what can it do? You leave it sitting there, and we, and we see this often. I remember Jemima had the, was able to have this conversation with, with a lady who lived next door to us at one point when this, uh, this uh, Hindu lady's family was going through all kinds of hardship. She was wondering, well, where are, where's my God during all of these things? And she's thinking things should be well because she frequently would dust her God. And you think... If your God cannot even keep the dirt and dust off of itself, I mean, how in the world is it going to help anything else in your family? Anything else in the world? It, it can't do anything. Well, and another portion of Scripture will talk about how somebody cuts down uh, wood from a tree. You know, and, and with part of it, he'll, he'll build something. With part of it, he'll cook something. And with another part of it, he'll make a God. Your God's made of the same thing you used for cooking and building. Does that make any sense? You're going to pray to that? Well, this is, of course, the way that it uh, plays out here. It says, uh, what prophet is, is um, an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation. Do you see the opposite of that? I mean, do you see the, the, the amazing change? Who do we trust in? The one who has created the heavens and the earth, the creator of all things, the one who made us, we worship him. These poor individuals, under the deceit of sinful hearts, they worship what they create. Does that make sense? Now, they will say probably, well, I, it, this is just a representation of, of this isn't the God. This represents their God. But realistically, 
even that supposed God that this little piece represents, man created it too. It's the creation of man's imagination. I mean, some, some countries even will call their, their stories of, of their gods and their beings as myths. I mean, they just straight up say that. And then sadly, they try to pretend Christianity is something like that. Ours is no myth. Ours is the truth. And what's, what's the amazing is the truth is more remarkable and awe-inspiring than myths. More amazing, more powerful than myths. You know, they say, woe to him who says to the wooden thing, awake, I need you, help me, do this, fix this, or to a silent stone, arise. Now, again, somebody might go through there and says, um, all right, it says metal, it says wooden, it says stone. Whew, I guess we're okay with ceramic idols. No, this isn't, this isn't speaking that only certain idols are false. It's giving an array. They're all garbage. They're all nonsense. You can overlay it with silver and gold, make it seem like something of value, but there is no breath in it. I, I remember conversing at times with somebody who said, please explain to me this. If this God is not true, explain to me how in this remote temple, of, of which they've never been to, but they've only heard stories about, in this remote temple, there is this idol of Ganesh, who is an a, a, a elephant-headed god, and they pour milk into a bowl at its feet, and every day they got to pour more milk in because that milk is gone. See, you're saying our god isn't real. He's drinking the milk. Well, amazing. Praise be to a god who can drink milk. I mean, how effective is that? How, I mean, if you need to get rid of some milk, very helpful God. But other than that, what use is that? You know. And again, I might say, is there not a crack somewhere in the basin at the bottom there? <laughs> you know, is somebody maybe not siphoning that out when everybody goes home at night? Look, I don't know what the answers are. I don't know if demons are sneaking in and drinking it. I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. It's not... God, and God don't need your milk, right? So listen, he follows and he speaks to these idols, and he falls and is silenced. Now, I want to get as fast as I can into uh, the remaining meat of this lesson. So let's, get, let's go, go, go. Uh, this, uh, most of us don't have uh, too much struggle with practical idolatry, and, and we are aware of pride in these challenges, and, and we, we all affirm the righteous judgment of God against this wicked man, that he deserves the woes that are coming to him, right? Sure. But mixed in with those woes are statements that we can understand um, with a Christian advancement. Right. We understand them through the lens of the New Testament that opens things up to us in a greater way. There is a verse in here that is then quoted three times in the New Testament. 
And it is in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. It is one of those key passages that so profoundly affected Martin Luther in the days of the Reformation. He began to realize, wait, it's not by works. It's not by penance. It's not by deeds. It's not by uh, uh, payments. My forgiveness, my righteous standing is by faith. Whoa, blew his mind, helped him to restudy the scripture in greater detail and recover the gospel that had been buried under a mass of meaningless traditions of men. The gospel that in terms of the institutional and organized church had been lost for centuries. The institutional and organized church. God still kept little remnants here and there. Little division groups who differed and disagreed and continued to study the scripture that he was saving all along. But the broader recovery of the gospel and dissemination of it began powerfully through the influence of this verse. And I want to show us the three places that it's stated in the New Testament and, and show a few really crucial ways that it influenced. It, each time it's quoted, it sort of emphasizes a different aspect of that sentence okay the first one is in romans chapter one well where we know verse 16 and 17 very well i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god unto salvation for everyone who believes to the jew first and then to the greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed, listen, from faith for faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The emphasis here is uh, on our saving, our being saved. The granting of life by faith. The righteous shall live by faith through the hearing of the gospel and the righteousness of Christ that's accounted to us. We have new life in Christ. It's a glorious thing. We, are we who were dead have now been made alive in Christ. But with that, the righteous shall live. We live now. But it also says, the righteous shall live. Correct? And that we see the emphasis sort of on not only us having life, but on the grounds of our righteousness, our standing. So our saving is based on faith. Our standing, the righteousness that comes to us, is based on faith, the grounds of our righteousness. Because listen to Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by before God 
by the law. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? So, simple question. How many are justified by the law? None. So, that means not a single Old Testament saint from the days of Moses when the law was given onward. None of them will ever stand before God accepted by their law-keeping. Correct? The only acceptance with God, whether Old Testament or New Testament, the only grounds of righteousness that we would be justified, declared righteous, our sins not counted to us, Christ's righteousness counted for us, is faith. That's it. It's like, <laughs> so, and then thirdly, on the top of page 10, not only the fact that our, our, we're saved is by faith, not only our standing is by faith, but our serving and our sanctification is also by faith. Because look at the way that Hebrews uses this passage. Hebrews 10.36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the, one, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So listen, the one, we live by it, by faith, and now it's we are living in it. We are living by it. So it, it not only gives us life, but now that we have life and we have a right standing before God, it now affects how we're living, which is why, again, we read a passage such as this in, in 2 Corinthians. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, for we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so that whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. So, what is walking by faith rather than by sight? You are doing what you know is pleasing to Him. But what if there's consequences? Earthly consequences. What if people might mock you? What if people might beat you? What if people might mistreat you? What if someone might take your life? What if you're put into a situation where your, your, your life is in peril? What about, what about? And you can keep saying, what about? And what you ought to be saying is, what would be the most Christ-honoring thing for me to do in this circumstance? And, and just to see the context of this, and, and we're going to have to end with this this section. So, so turn with me, if you were to, would, to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, and we're going we're gonna to end by looking at this chapter a bit, because our time is up. 
But in verse 8, it reminds us of this. It says, we are afflicted in every way. Now, that word there for uh, 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 afflicted does not, is not a word that is limited to mistreated by others. It's, it's, it's a broader word that's, that's more like this. We suffer in many ways. We suffer difficulties in many ways. And then it goes on to, to talk about, all, uh, um, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Perplexed means what? At times, why is God allowing this to happen? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? And, and, and those questions of why, we've asked them. People we know have asked them. And sometimes, listen, we remain perplexed. Okay, listen. Sometimes we're afflicted. Sometimes we're suffering. And we remain suffering. Paul pled with the Lord for the thorn in the flesh to be removed. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient. The, the, the suffering would remain. We, we, we may pray for the perplexed. Lord, I'm confused. Lord, I don't understand to be removed. Stop thinking you have to understand. Stop thinking he has to explain to you. I cannot, until you explain to me how you can work this together for good, I'm not okay with this. Well, it does, you got to just cast off and say, I don't get it, but I believe. And on and on he, go, he, he, he goes down and he says in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. There is death at potentially every corner and every turn. And I guess what happens is sometimes we begin to take those things for granted. We, in a sense, live in, in, in the cush comfort of America. And so we don't we often don't understand the, the challenges and the trials and the struggles that other believers face on a regular basis. Uh, got an email today from a poor guy who's been a missionary for a number of years in Papua New Guinea, and, and he's still struggling. He, his mental faculties don't work. He's had so many different diseases. He's still trying to fight off uh, blood parasites, and he's got all of these things going on. And so also another guy who is, has been more than a year and a half convalescing from diseases that he caught serving the Lord in Papua New Guinea. And the fact is this, these men before they went there with their wives and with their kids, they knew this. The likelihood of us getting there and succumbing to some severe disease that debilitates or brings death to someone in the family is exceedingly high. Yet the cause of Christ is higher. And so they went. They had read the stories of, of all who have died and of all the disease that comes. And as it's happened to them, they're not enjoying the disease and the difficulties, but they're also not complaining. They knew 
This is the danger. But Christ is more important. His word, the fellowship of the saints, the gospel is more important than me, than this life. He says, that's why he says, we, verse 11, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus might be manifest in me. I was looking at, at some things today, and, and just to, to sort of put a few things in perspective, again, not making light of. COVID-19 at, at some point is probably going to uh, affect someone we know personally. It may take the life of someone that we know personally. So we will not take that lightly at all. But realistically, the, the present uh, fatality rate is about 1.4%, which is, is certainly more than our own personal preference. But I, I just thought in myself today, and I was looking these things up, for those who serve and those who, uh, who live and go to church in other areas and in other countries... There are diseases such as malaria. Have you ever heard of this sickness? Yes, it's not a secret sickness. Did you know that malaria affects somewhere between a half to three million people a year? Did you know that in many years, up to three million people die of malaria? That's pretty severe, isn't it? Uh, so basically, depending on the year, either every 30 seconds or every two minutes, a child dies from malaria. That's pretty intense, isn't it? And we often, in the area even in which, which um, we lived for many years in uh, India, there are seasons in which malaria is just rampant. And the fact is this, every time you go to the shop to get food, every time you go to the gathering of the saints, mosquito bites that fella, he comes and gets you, and you know what? You now have it. In, in our area also, particular in, in India, the area where we were uh, outside of Navi Mumbai, they even have a season where there are outbreaks of what's called dengue, or in India they call dengue fever. Dengue fever has a, a, a mortality rate of 2 to 5%. COVID, 1.4. Dengue, 2 to 5%. You know what, people live with this, these challenges and these struggles every day. And when I say that, you think, well, dengue, why not worried about dengue? Yeah, here in cushy America, maybe not so much. But did you know that dengue affects somewhere between 100 to 400 million people a year? So we're looking at all these stats that we're getting now and not realizing yeah, it, it's, it's global. And yes, it's serious. But it's not the most serious thing that exists. And in some existing regions, 
they annually have things that are worse than we're facing right now. But by the grace of God, they continue to preach the gospel. By the grace of God, they, they carry on recognizing, you know what? It's not about this life. That's why it says this um, in verse 17 of chapter 4. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. As we look not to the things that are seen, this life, these bodies, these homes, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the unseen things are eternal. Well, are you talking about even our own bodies? Can you see them? Yes, and in case we didn't get it, he carries on and says that exactly. Verse, in verse chapter 5, for we know that if the tent of our earthly home is destroyed, that's a poetic way of saying our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent that is in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, in this body, we groan being burdened. Not that we be unclothed, but further clothed, so that what is mortal would be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So that the answer is what? We're of good courage, verse 8. We would rather be away from the body. Rather be, in, in, in other words, what he's saying is what? If life is lost for the believer... It's a better circumstance to live as Christ, to die as gain. When rightly understanding this life and eternal life, the Christian screams, rather. The Christian screams, longing. But as long as I remain here, what's it going to be? Rather be with the Lord and at home with the Lord. But verse 9, so that whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please Him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Nothing matters in this world. We, we don't work to hold on to our lives. We work to serve Him with our lives. It says this, and I'll close with this in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life, lose it. But whoever loses his life, listen, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, will save it. And so what serves the proclamation of the word, what serves the glory of Christ, we value those things above and beyond and before all else. So let us, uh, let us pray. Lord, as we uh, close out this time, we are so thankful at how frequently your word reminds us of the 
warnings of this life, the pride and the greed and the selfishness and the sin and the arrogance warn us of even, even our earthly temptations to make too much of this life and, and, and cling to it too tightly when it is you we must cling to above all else. Lord, we pray for uh, ourselves in this time. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ at this time. Uh, stir us up now with even a greater awareness to with earnestness pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world in, in South Asia as well as throughout Africa that annually face circumstances significantly more severe than what we are presently facing. Lord, we thank you for the continued earnestness and boldness that you give them to not count their lives of any value to themselves, but that they may finish their course, that they may serve you with every breath that you've given to them. God, I pray that you would grant us that strength. You would grant us that perseverance. Lord, that you would lay low our pride. You would lay low our greed. You would lay, load, uh, lay low our clinging to mortality. And you would lift high in our hearts and minds the greatness of our God. That our boast would be in you. Our glory would be in you. Our hope rests in you. You, O oh God, are our righteousness. You are the one who has given us not only this life for whatever days are allotted, but you've given us the life that is truly life in Christ. O oh Lord, may we enjoy the life in Christ in the fullest measure that we can know now as we await its increase when we pass from these bodies. Lord, continue to instruct us and help us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray.